Okay, friends, we uh, continue in our uh, series in 1 Corinthians, uh, The Call to Be Spiritual. And uh, today we turn our attention to chapter 8. Uh, we're going to cover um, all of that chapter. Um, but you needn't fear, it's not nearly as long as the last chapter. Uh, this one's only 13 verses long. Okay, so we'll do chat. We're gonna we're gonna set our, our attention on chapter eight. Uh, I've entitled this sermon "The Love of Knowledge." Recall that um, in in recent weeks in our study of First Corinthians, we've been looking at a number of slogans, or adages, or sayings. Um, and uh, well, here's another one. Here's one I'm providing to the. To the, to the discussion. You could win the argument and lose your audience. You've heard that, right? You can win the argument uh, and lose your audience. Um, you know, you only have to sit with a, uh, with a married couple where one of them's trying to tell a story to see this, and they start arguing about whether it was a Tuesday or a Wednesday, something like that. Um, <clears throat> but, th- but this idea that there's a, a way in which you can be right, but, but, but move forward in the wrong way towards people, right? This, this idea, it, it, it's great advice in almost every setting. Now, that doesn't mean you, you don't want to share your opinion, like, like, you know, don't enter into an argument or something like that. It doesn't mean that you don't want to engage in debate in certain times or challenge others' ideas that are wrong. Uh, but the point is that your point of view or position winning the day isn't the most important thing most of the time. Because you could be right, you could, you could be right, but you could so abuse the person that you're talking to that they couldn't care less whether you're right. Knowledge is a tricky thing in that way. Most people love knowledge, right? Most people love to, to accumulate um, more understanding, right? The, the, they love to be in the know, to have the skinny, to be on the inside. But knowledge in and of itself isn't actually of any real value. It has to be acquired in service of something. Knowledge needs to have a worthy goal. There are plenty of pompous people who know a great deal about a whole variety of things, but nobody wants to be around those people. They don't serve anyone. They don't accomplish. They don't help anyone, right? All they seem to care about uh, is themselves and the, their stature. Their knowledge is to impress, not to help or serve anyone. Do you fall into that camp ever? Well, this kind of pride slips into the church. It's a sneaky, vile cancer that actually hurts people. And you wouldn't think so, right? You'd think people wanting to increase in knowledge would always be good, but it's oftentimes when, when turned inward for selfish um, goals, right? It can really hurt people. And it was happening in Corinth, that ancient church in, in uh, Greece. There was a love of knowledge itself rather than a love that proceeded from knowledge. 
and left unaddressed, people were in great spiritual danger. And so Paul writes this chapter. So, so let's turn our attention to the actual text, to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Remember, friends, this is like no other book. These are the divine words of God, our Creator and Redeemer. Now, concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist." However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat." lest I make my brother stumble. Though the topic might be strange, the theme is really rather simple. I hope to convince you that this, this, this chapter is all about this idea, that knowledge is nothing without love. Knowledge is nothing without love. Now, in order to get to that conclusion, I, I want you to imagine that, we're, that you're on those little, what, those little rocks in the grass that form a path sometimes, right? And there's three steps to get to this conclusion, and these are the steps that Paul's going to take us on to get to this theme that knowledge is nothing without love. First, he'll demonstrate, the first step, if you will, uh, he'll, he'll convince us that knowledge alone produces pride. That's that first step we'll take on this little path. And the second step will be this, that knowledge alone destroys others. So the first step is that knowledge alone produces pride. The second one is that it actually destroys other people. And finally, that last step, the gospel ideal that knowledge, when properly sought, should be used to love other people. So knowledge alone produces pride. Knowledge alone destroys other people, but that's not what knowledge should be. This last step is that, that knowledge, when properly sought after, should, should be turned towards other people in love. Okay, so that's how we'll approach the text. 
So let's take that first step. Knowledge alone produces pride. We see that in the, in the first few verses of the chapter. Look there again at the, at the first verse. Let your eyes drop on the second half of that verse. Knowledge puffs up. That's a metaphor for being filled with pride, right? Over the last few weeks, we have been seeing the need for knowledge. Paul's been talking about knowledge and discernment and and nuance and and the need for understanding spiritual truth applied to various life circumstances. We've seen a lot of those those issues. In chapters 6 and 7, we looked at the necessity of seeing our freedom in Christ through the lens of what's actually practically helpful. Freedom can be applied selfishly and even result in our enslavement. We looked at that. We've considered the goodness of marriage, but also considered the benefits of remaining single. So too, we have seen that while judgment of the motives of others is inappropriate, that's God's job, it is honorable and loving to judge the obvious sins of others in the church that damage the reputation of Christ. Knowledge alone, without discernment and nuance and wisdom, is profoundly unhelpful. What's more, it produces sinful pride. It puffs up, as I've said, verse 1 there. Paul warned of, warned of this earlier in the book in, in the context of being hypercritical of church leaders. Think back to chapter 4 and verse 5. Do not pronounce judgment before the time. And then he concludes that thought with, that none of you may be puffed up. But what is Paul getting at in our text? What, what, what is leading to this, this prideful puffing up of the people um, through knowledge? Well, Paul's addressing a specific kind of knowledge here. It's, it's really tight here. He says, this knowledge, and he writes, puffs up, verse 1. He's referring to the knowledge concerning food offered to idols. Right? You, you, you can't run into the idea of being puffed up without uh, going through that idea. It's the setup. Now, the beginning of chapter 7 indicated that the Corinthians had sent a letter to Paul asking him about a bunch of things. Right? He, he starts off chapter 7 by identifying that. Now to the issues that you wanted me to you know, tell you about. Um, that's my paraphrase, right? Well, it appears that chapter 7 didn't exhaust all of those questions. Because chapter 8 now says, now concerning meat offered to idols. Like, he's not done with all of the things that they had questions about. A question that was particularly relevant in Corinth. Namely, whether Christians were permitted to eat meat that had been offered to pagan gods and then later sold to the public. Now, let me just nerd out a little bit on Corinth here for you so you can remember some things about that city. It's important to know that it was a very wealthy and important place in the Roman Empire. It was perhaps the third most prominent city behind Rome and Alexandria, Egypt. Greece sits between Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and Italy, if, you're, if you can picture the Mediterranean map in, in, in your mind. Uh, And Corinth is a city that has a port on either side of it. Merchants from all over the Mediterranean would come to this strategic city uh, to do business. And they imported not only their commercial goods, but their religions as well. Scholars have identified some 26 different sacred places uh, where Roman and Greek gods were worshipped there. 
as well as mystery cults and, 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 and all sorts of uh, other uh, um, so-called gods coming out of Egypt and places far away from there. Corinth was home to the temples, for example, of Apollo and Aphrodite, Poseidon, and many others. In the ancient world, people would offer sacrifices to many different gods. They would have no problem. It wasn't a, it was, it was no, uh, no, no problem for them to offer you know, animal sacrifices to all these different gods to try to appease all of them so that their lives would go well. But unlike Jewish priests, the priests at the temple in Jerusalem, pagan priests wouldn't burn all of these animals up on the altar so that they were completely you know, consumed by the fire. They would rather profit from the sale of lots and lots of meat uh, in the marketplace that, that didn't get burned up. So as a result, it was not unusual for a Christian in Corinth to purchase such meat or be offered such meat at a friend's uh, house for dinner or something like that. And this is where the controversy came in. Was it permissible for a Christian to eat meat that had previously been offered in sacrifice to an idol? Could those in the Corinthian church eat meat from an animal given in worship to, say, the Egyptian god Isis? As I said, there were some who knew the answer. There were, there were some that had the knowledge, how to, how to navigate this, how to think through it rightly, or so they thought. So Paul begins our text by quoting those people. Look at verse 1 there. All of us possess knowledge. The ESV has it set off in quotes. So this is yet another thing that Paul's responding to that Corinthians are saying. We've, we've seen a number of these things. So he starts off and he says, all of us um, possess knowledge. In other words, they claim to have the, the understanding of how to answer the question about meat offered to idols, how to navigate those situations that would arise. But before Paul addresses the rightness or wrongness of how they view that, that, that issue, he rebukes them for their arrogance. Notice that in the ESV, the word knowledge is set off in quotes, as if Paul said, your so-called knowledge makes you arrogant, puffs you up. Now, Paul's going to actually agree with their basic assessment in the verses that follow. It's not that, he, it's not that they aren't thinking through this the right way, just the facts, if you will. He, he begins, though, by being critical of their attitudes about the knowledge that they possess, about how they treat others in light of that knowledge. Look at verse 2 there. If anyone imagines that he knows something, you think you know this? That's what he's saying. If you think you know this, you don't yet know as you ought to know. In other words, there's more to the story than just knowing the answer to a question. He's saying that knowledge alone isn't the end goal. Thinking that you have your theological positions all tidy, Christian friend. Satisfying yourself intellectually about how the church ought to view controversial issues in life. Having all your questions about religion and doctrine all buttoned up isn't actually the end goal. In fact, when you think that you know something, you're not done. You have to do something with that knowledge. Or to say it another way, knowledge is supposed to produce something, and that something is love. 
Some of the Corinthians had arrived at an understanding about how to navigate this idle meat problem, but their attitude towards others had puffed themselves up in pride, and they had failed to use that knowledge to love their brothers, to build them up, to help them. Look at verse 1. This knowledge puffs up. What's the rest of that? But love builds up. Knowledge alone just makes you arrogant. But if you take knowledge and then use it in service of other people, you'll actually build them up. But the Corinthians weren't doing that. And I, so let, let me just ask you, do you ever do this? Do you, do, you ever, do you ever just look down your nose at other people because you've got, you've got the answers to something? You know, you, you use like something that God has given you, some understanding that God has given you, and now all of a sudden you're the show. You ever do that? I must confess I do. So maybe that'll make the water warm so that you can kind of wade on in and, and apply this text to yourself. But we do this. We shake our heads at people who haven't figured out the things that we've figured out in the Christian life. You ever see accumulating knowledge as more important than other people? Have you ever seen someone pretty skillful in an area almost mock a younger person who doesn't know how to cook or work on an engine or exercise with weights or something else? I mean, it's, it's, it's happening all the time. You know, you achieve some kind of knowledge on how to do something, and then instead of, like, helping somebody else, like, disciple them, right, you almost, like, make fun of them because they're not where you are. You ever do that? Listen carefully to the text if you ever have those, those inclinations. God's trying to correct us and shape us through this. This idea of, of being puffed up with knowledge, it's, it's particularly susceptible in young men. I know this because I used to be a young man. And, and, and I love to, 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 to read theology I love to grow in my understanding of how the Bibles fit together. But when I was young, I, I used that to serve myself so that, so that other people would think well of me and, instead of using that knowledge to serve other people. So be careful, friends. It's, it's not that we don't want to grow in knowledge. That's not at all what Paul's saying. But he's saying that knowledge alone is of no value. Okay? I mean... Look at if we look back in, in, earlier in the book, Paul's word uh, gives us a good corrective. Chapter four and verse seven says, "What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Right? Knowledge is a gift. Don't act like you know you're, you've discovered America and no one else did or something, right? By your own efforts. All right. So what what is Paul saying then? Should we strive to know truth or love people? Which is it? Should we be mature or caring? Well, these things are, are not being pitted against one another. But Paul is rather saying that knowledge is for the purpose of love. Christians are to seek knowledge, but not for the sole purpose of establishing their individual rights. I know this, so therefore I get. But rather, they should seek knowledge in order to love people better to love people more. 
This truth is demonstrated by the foundation of one's faith. I mean, it's brilliant what Paul does here. Look at verse 3 there. If anyone loves God, he is known by God. Now, no one, no one would have anticipated this as the next sentence in this, in this text, right? If anyone loves God, he's known by God. So, the logic goes like this. Do you love God? Christian friend, do you love God? It's because God's knowledge of you was, first of all, more than information. God's knowledge of you was more than just information. God's knowledge of people begins before they're even born. I mean, hear Jeremiah, right at the book of the beginning of that prophecy. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, Right? But even more than that, God's knowledge of his people is for the purpose of their salvation and good. He just doesn't know people in some intellectual way, right? Or, or even in a really awesome way, like he knows people before they're born and that's it. It's not merely knowledge. He knows his people for the purpose of their salvation and their good. His knowledge is, is thus unbreakably connected to his love for them. I mean, listen to Romans 8, verse 29. Those whom God foreknew, he also predestined for what? To be conformed to the image of his Son. He goes on to say, and those whom he predestined, he also called, called to salvation. Those whom he called, he also justified, right? Uh, uh, declared them innocent of their sins. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That's yet future. That's when you have your resurrection body free of sin in, in eternity, right? So Paul, and, and if you just keep, I mean, Romans 8 is great, right? But if you keep reading Romans 8, by declare, uh, Paul concludes by declaring that no one and nothing can separate us from the what? From the love of God in Christ Jesus. God's knowledge of us is, 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 what, unbreakably connected to his love for us, for his desire for our good. God's knowledge of us is so we might be united to Christ by faith for our eternal good, that we might end up glorified in heaven, living as forgiven and free and satisfied forever. That's the end goal of God's knowledge of us. And so we are called to follow God here and imitate him. Paul concedes that these brothers' knowledge of the idol meat issue was factually correct. He does this in verses 4 through 6. In those verses, he agrees with them. Yes, you're right. Idols are not real. While many believe in false gods, mystery religions, pagan deities, they don't actually exist. Because of this, meat offered to any of them is of no consequence, generally speaking. Now, there's some other related issues that he's going to deal with in a couple of chapters. But essentially, he concedes the matter, right? He says, you know, you're right. You're right. Believing in that there's only one God is actually right. Verse 6, there is one God and one Lord Jesus Christ. But that's not all he says. That's not all he says about the Father and Son. He says that the Father created all things and they were created for him. Also, the Lord Jesus Christ is, is, is also heralded as the divine agent of creation, and his purposes are the reason we were made. 
We were made to bring glory to God through the costly love of Christ. We were given life and new life in order to show others the love of Jesus. So our knowledge must be for that beautiful purpose. You accumulating knowledge is not so you can serve you. God made you for His purposes. Christ called you to Himself for His purposes. So that you might glorify God in Jesus. And how does that take place? That takes place by loving God and loving neighbor. Serving God and serving others. Right? You don't get to just accumulate everything you want for your purposes. That's not Christian. That's not, that's not, that's not what people on the mission are called to do. That's not how knowledge, though, is being employed in Corinth. And I wonder how knowledge is being employed in your life. Knowledge without love is nothing. For knowledge alone produces pride. But it's even worse than that. The second step we take now, knowledge alone destroys. We see this in the, in the middle part of the text, the, the great majority of the verses. Knowledge alone produces pride in you, but it also can destroy those you're supposed to love. You see, not all Christians are at the same place when it comes to spiritual maturity. Is that shocking to you? That we're not all at exactly the, sp- the same level of maturity? Of course not. Look at verse 7, though, there. He says, not all possess this knowledge. Not all possess this knowledge. It seems like a simple point, simple enough point. But it can be lost on the arrogant. They had been saying, all of us possess knowledge. The, the, the knowledge about the fact that idols aren't real and so we can freely eat the meat that's offered to them. All of us possess knowledge, but that actually wasn't true. All didn't have that knowledge. Paul spoke of the reality of those who were less mature, weaker in their faith, lacking knowledge of this freedom to eat uh, idol meat. He explained that they might have previously engaged in that kind of idol worship, these weaker brothers. And so they can't separate. That's the old life. I can't do that. I'm so connected to that, right? I did that before my conversion, and it's just, I feel like my conscience won't let me engage in that kind of, that old religion stuff. During the Reformation, the Roman Catholic authorities demanded that Martin Luther recant his biblical understanding of salvation being by grace alone, through faith in Jesus Christ alone. In his reply, Luther famously said, it is neither good nor right to go against one's conscience. And that's a very good, that's a very good thing uh, to believe and to, and to follow. It is indeed good not to go against your conscience. The principles found actually in Romans 14 and verse 23 The idea is that whatever you believe to be violating God's commands, whether you're right or not, it's sin for you to to do that. In other words, if you believe that, that, that eating a certain kind of food or wearing a certain kind of clothes, clothing or, or, or wearing a certain you know, style of, uh, of clothes or eating a kind of food or drinking something or, or listening to some kind of music or engaging in some kind of activity, if you think that that's wrong, that God prohibits that kind of behavior, 
even if you don't have it right, if you do that, it's sin for you. It violates your conscience, right? So we have this reality that there are always people in our church who have weak faith in this area or that area, right? We can't even talk about mature Christians like just in, in you know, without nuance. We can't say like, you, you know, like, oh, Larry is, you know, he's mature in everything because nobody's like that. Right? We've got all these different areas that we're struggling in. We've got strong faith, faith here and weak faith there. That's what the church is made up of, people like that. Unfinished, somewhat broken, you know, people that will be finished one day in, in heaven. For some people, their conscience won't let them listen to secular music, wear makeup, drink alcohol, play cards, wear, wear a certain kind of clothing, even going, going to the movies. Now, you might hear some of that list and you might think, that's ridiculous. Friend, you're called to love weaker brothers, not mock them. And everybody's got a weak conscience in different areas. While Christians have great freedom to do many things, if it violates their conscience, they shouldn't do it. You see, even among permissible activities, the intent to act against what one believes to be God's command, it's sin. Stronger brothers must respect weaker brothers because of this. In demanding their freedoms, stronger brothers can tempt weaker brothers to do what they believe God is telling them not to do. That is, that is no brand of love. Hear how serious the Lord says this is, causing another brother to stumble. Matthew 18. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. He goes on to say, Woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. Serious language, isn't it? Why is that? Because our Savior was a Savior of love. He loved people. He came to help people, to redeem people for their good. For you and your Christian freedom that Jesus bought for you to, to smash somebody else that, that, that's also one of Christ's? Friends, that's terrible. That's deserving of the language that Jesus warned with there. The, re the reality of people having weaker faith than you in the church means you could do great harm to them if you value your knowledge more than you value them. You can reintroduce them to a world they abandoned when they turned to Christ, causing them to try and make peace with their guilt as they embrace what they believe to be wrong, but following you who they look up to. Let me illustrate this teaching from verses 9 and 10 that I've just been trying to summarize here. Imagine a friend of yours becomes a Christian, comes to faith. He, 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 he turns from a life that was devoted to gambling, that destroyed his marriage, and uh, he nearly bankrupted him. 
led to him doing things like stealing from his family in order to continue worshiping his idol that is the card table. Imagine you have a friend like that. That was his life, and God in his mercy saved him, brought him to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. Now, Christians are free to play cards. I hope that doesn't shock you. There, there's nothing sinful per se about playing euchre or rummy or pinochle or even poker. But imagine my friend's, that friend is my friend and he's staying at my house. And I invite a bunch of other friends over to play one of these card games because I'm free to do so. I have that knowledge. What if I did so after he told me he didn't know if he could ever do that because it just didn't seem right to him? But I continued to flaunt it so that he would eventually join in, thinking it to be against what God wants him to do. How unloving that would be, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it be a terrible friend to do something like that? How unchristian to use my freedom to harm my brother, to be a stumbling block to him, to cause him to be pressured to actually violate his conscience and sin against God. And that's Paul's point. Look at the sober language he uses in verse 11 there. By your knowledge, this weak person is, you see the word he uses there? It's destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died. We were made by God for his purposes, we were fashioned by Christ to reflect his glory. Verse 6 tells us that, but it's, it's so easy to turn his mission into our own, to forget the example of the one who came not to be served but to serve, to abandon our calling to reflect Christ's love and exchange it for demanding our rights, even at the expense of other people. We can be so arrogant, and this is a constant battle of our hearts. As Nathan rightly pointed out from Mark this morning, that stuff, it just oozes out of our sinful hearts. It comes up again and again. We can embrace our freedoms while crushing other people. We can see our faith as opening the door to live however we want while forgetting that Christ's great sacrifice purchased the life of everybody in the church, even those whose faith is weaker than ours at certain points. To do this is sin. Strong brother with all the knowledge. To crush other people so that you can do whatever you think is right. You can demand your freedoms at the cost of other people. It's sin. Of course it's sin. Look at verses 11 and 12 again together. By your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it's weak, you sin against Christ. That brother is owned by Christ. You sin against them, you sin against Christ. Demanding your right to drink or play cards or listen to a certain music or, or whatever, when you know it could cause a weaker brother to sin, sets you against Jesus and his purposes. If Christ laid down his life for weaker brothers, we need to, we need to be willing to lay down our freedoms for them. 
Now, this is not to say we shouldn't try to help our brothers bring their consciences in line with the Bible so that they don't go beyond God's Word in identifying sin, right? It's not that we, we never want to help a weaker brother to grow in their understanding of the freedom that they have in Jesus. It's not that we want to you know, never engage in conversations like that or something. Helping them, say, embrace the truth of verse 8. We want to help them. Let me, let me use my paraphrase, though, of verse 8. You look at verse 8. I'm going to read it, though. I'm going to add some words, okay? Food or cigars or secular music will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we refrain from these things and no better off if we engage in them. It's okay to try to take weaker brothers to this place and convince them of the freedom that that Jesus bought for them. You don't get closer to God by wearing this kind of clothing or refraining from this kind of clothing. Now, their their conscience might be very weak at this point, but you, you do want to try to disciple people and help people. Nevertheless, we cannot bully our friends into a mature conscience. And even if a brother does mature and no longer sees tattoos or dancing or playing the drums as sinful, that doesn't mean they're going to start engaging in those things, right? They might, like Paul, come to the place where they think, while it's permissible, I'm not sure for me that it's actually helpful. That's completely okay. Don't violate your conscience until you're fully convinced, Christian. Strive to educate and train your conscience by the Word of Christ. And even then, you're free to either engage in your freedoms or lay them aside. And as you mature Christian friends, be wary of how easily it is to destroy those who are by God's grace trying to mature, trying to bring the practical outworkings of their faith in various areas to a place of biblical strength, but are not yet where you are. Be wary of how easy it is to damage their their faith. The main point of our text, again, is this. Knowledge is nothing without love. Paul is taking us on on these steps, right? We've, 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 We've passed two of them now. Knowledge alone produces pride. Knowledge alone destroys others. And finally, the gospel ideal. This is this final step. It's a short one. We're at the end. The gospel ideal that knowledge, when properly sought, should be used to love other people. Look at verse 13 there. Paul brings himself, throws his own skin in the game here as an example. If food causes my brother to stumble, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Wow, that's kind of serious, isn't it? It should be. Love costs something. Love often costs your rights. It it often costs the fun that you thought you were going to have at a certain event or something or whatever. Love is often costly. 
And I, and I wonder if you could say that kind of a statement. Are you at that place? Where you could actually take something that you actually enjoy, you know? I eat this, drink this, do this to the glory of Christ, that kind of a thing. Are you at a place where you could lay that aside in a certain circumstance when you're around a, a weaker brother just so that you can serve them? So that, so that you, would, you would be sure that you weren't causing this brother to stumble? Now, I'm not suggesting that we don't enjoy any of our Christian freedoms on the off chance that there might be a weaker brother out there. I don't think that's what this text is teaching. I think what this text is teaching is that you need to know the people in your church so well that you know their areas of, of weakness in their conscience so that you know when that brother comes over, I'm not going to engage in that activity because I don't want to hurt him. I don't want to lead him in, into sin, right? It requires a closeness of relationship. It requires that, that you have more than just sort of a superficial knowledge of people. You actually know them, and the knowledge that you have for them, you actually intend for their good, right? That's the love of God that we talked about at the beginning of the text. But ask yourself that question, friends, because, boy, we hang on to our freedoms like with both fists, right? Are you willing to make great sacrifices with respect to your freedoms in order to serve other people in the church. What might, what might that look like in your life? There will be no struggle in the next world. There won't. We, this is an issue we will not have to navigate in the new world. In the kingdom of heaven, when our salvation is made complete, we will be glorified there will no longer be this, this you know, weak and, you know, weakness and, and strength in, in various areas of our faith. Our faith will be brought to sight. We'll have bodies like our Savior, minds like our Savior. We will not struggle with sin or pride. We will not have to sacrifice freedoms that Jesus purchased for us. But until that glorious day, until he returns, let us honor Christ by embracing the knowledge his Spirit gives us, but be quick, eager, happy to lay aside whatever freedoms we have in order to love others as Christ does. Knowledge is nothing without love, but the church is seen as glorious when knowledge is for the purpose of showing Christ to our friends. May it be so. Take a few moments of quiet reflection over these things. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a big topic. But do ask God what he would have you to do in response.